Would you remain standing for the reading of God's word from the Gospel of Mark, please? When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all of the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him to greet him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about? (laughs) Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It is often cast him even into fire and water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and said to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a a corpse, and many of them said, "He he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Allison. If you have your Bible and want to turn to Mark chapter 9, this passage that Allison just read, we are in week three of our series called The Way of Jesus. Um, Jesus has been teaching chapters 8, 9, and we'll continue on into 10. He's teaching his disciples what it means to follow him. What does it look like? What does it feel like to be a follower of Jesus? What is it? What kind of life is it? How do we participate in it? We said we're going to cover kind of three categories. Being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. And these first three sermons have been in this, being with Jesus. What is the way of Jesus look like? It looks like being with Jesus. And we looked... Two weeks ago at this idea of following him to the cross of a life of self-denial, suffering. And then last week he looked at, it's the way of listening. It's the way of paying attention to what Jesus is saying and what God is saying. Those are the first two. And so today we're going to move into the third, um, the third one. And as we do these sermons, I'm going to be kind of dumping a bunch of spiritual disciplines on you. If you hear the last week or two, you, last week we covered four spiritual disciplines. Two weeks ago we covered two so there's going to be just this constant like fountain. I want to just kind of give, give a caveat and a little warning here that I've been using this uh, table of contents illustration to describe this sermon series. It's a lot of spiritual disciplines we're covering, and my goal here is not to explain every single one of them or help you implement every one of them 
today. It's kind of give you an overview of how all these different disciplines fit into what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And in some ways, I think this sermon series is casting like a five to seven year vision for our church and the different things that we will cover in various sermon series and applications and in community groups and to implement, like today we're going to talk about Sabbath. Uh, implement, implementing the practice of Sabbath is something that could take us a whole year as individuals in a church, not something you just flip a switch. <laughs> so just a caveat and a warning for patience and don't feel like I'm dumping a ton of stuff to go do. It's more of casting vision for what it looks like to participate holistically. Let's pray and then we'll jump into this passage. Father, we thank you for stories like this that, that highlight the power that you have, the power that Jesus had, and how he demonstrated it. So we ask now that you would um, call our hearts to believe, to acknowledge, as this father does, his unbelief and yet run to you and ask you to run to him. And so let us do that now. Give us eyes to see and hearts, hearts uh, to hear. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So most of you know I have four children. Four children, six, five, two, and eight months. So there's a lot of chaos at our house, as I say. But there's a, there's a lot of common words and language that I hear at my house. Things like, Daddy, watch this. I think watch this is probably the most common. We're like, we're like you know, like the redneck's favorite word, last words is always, hey, y'all watch this. That's like my son's. It's just, hey, watch this, or Knox. Knox somehow calls me dad instead of daddy, so he's always like, look, dad, look, dad. They're just constantly, look, they're just calling for our attention, calling for our attention, calling for our attention, calling for my attention constantly, and it's tiring for me, but for them, it's just the way that they know how to interact, and there's this deep-seated awareness that they have that's producing this kind of behavior, and it's this awareness, this belief, I think, that they know, whether they know it or not, that they, whether they know they know it or not, that their food comes from me, like they're bed comes from me, their clean laundry comes from me, the batteries for their toy truck that I just replaced yesterday come from me again, right, the, when they get hurt, their band-aids come, like, they realize that all of, all that they have comes from me and Kristen, and at a deeper level, they're, like, in their, in their way of being one, two, five, and six, their identity comes from me, their access to the outside world comes through me, like, Kristen and I, in a lot of ways, are their source of life. There's no other way to describe it. Like, they cannot live, they will not live without being in relationship with me, and they know it, and their response is, hey, watch, hey, help, hey, come here. Hey, Knox, when he was 18 months, when, before he could talk, he developed a super annoying habit of coming over and just grabbing your hand and dragging you to whatever he wanted. So, like, I felt as a drug across the house all the time to the, to the next thing that broke or whatever he wanted me to see or the book he wanted me to read. It's like this constant attention he's paying to me because he knows, subliminally, that I am his source of life. You know, this isn't some sort of philosophical conversation he has with himself as he falls to sleep, right? It's not a decision that he makes to be dependent on me. It's not some metaphysical thing. It's simply a lived-in reality. It's just the way that he exists in the world is a way of dependence upon me and Kristen. Today I want us to see that the way of Jesus is a way of dependence upon him. The way of Jesus is the way of dependence upon God. It's illustrated so well by small children. Right? They're just they simply exist in this state of trust and reliance that they constantly come to me and to Kristen and 
to, to, to ask for things because they know in their hearts that they depend upon us. It's a lived-in reality. And so as followers of Jesus, dependence upon God is not some kind of decision that we make. It's not some kind of mental assent that we give to this idea. It's not even like a bunch of radical choices to prove that you, you know, rely on God enough. It's a way of interacting with the world, a life of being aligned with the reality that we depend upon God. Because the fact is that whether you admit it or not, you are already, in fact, dependent upon God. That's a fact of reality. So following Jesus is not about becoming dependent. It's about living in alignment with that existing reality of our dependence upon Christ. So, Today I want to see from this text, I want you to see two realities to embrace and then two practices to pursue. Two realities to embrace and two practices to pursue. So let's look here at our story. And the story I want you to see is there's a lot going on with, the, there's a lot of verses dedicated to the, to the demon and the boy. The story is about, and Mark wants us to focus on and hear about the disciples, Remember, we, we talked before in the previous Mark series about Mark's kind of sandwich techniques here. This uh, story starts with the disciples, and it ends with the disciples, and it has the man in the middle, right? And so the story is, some, there's the, the, what happens with the man and his son is tell, teaching us a lesson about the disciples. And so we want to see what the, what's going on with the disciples here. And the disciples are about to learn a lesson, not so much taught by Jesus, but demonstrated. So Jesus and his, so Peter, uh, Peter, James, and John were up on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's our story from last week. And they come down the mountain, and there's this bunch of chaos, and they had kind of this nice retreat up on the mountain where they met with God, and they come down, and what do you find? You just find, like, chaos and noise and, and arguing. And the other disciples, the other nine disciples, are in kind of a bit of a jam, right? There's, something's not right with them. And so Jesus is like, hey, what is going on? Like, why all the people come to Jesus? And he says, they, he says what, what is going on here? And this is, what, this is what someone calls out. Someone from the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son to you. So I think it's important for us to notice. I brought my son to you, Jesus. Who's, that's who I was bringing him to. For he had a spirit that makes him mute. Tells what happens. And in the second half of verse 18, he says this sentence. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. So Jesus like, went out to lunch. And he left his disciples with one job to do. I, don't, I, I found this while I was researching this. In Mark chapter 3, verse 14, it tells the, the point of Jesus calling disciples. You can write this down if you want. This is Mark chapter 3, verse 14. And it says that Jesus called disciples and he appointed 12 so that, and listen to why he appointed 12 disciples, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have the ability to cast out demons. So he calls these disciples to himself, and he says, hey, what I want you to do is preach and cast out demons. And now, fast forward, this is what they were doing. Now they're in this situation. Jesus is out to lunch. They're here. They're manning the shop. Someone comes in and says, hey, I need you to cast out a demon, and they can't do it. Like, can you put yourself in their shoes in this moment? Like, this is embarrassing. Like, this is, you had one job to do, right? You know, that. you had one job to do, and here they are. They can't do it. And this is a recurring theme of this story and of this entire section about the disciples, that the disciples are weak and frail and unable to do what they're supposed to be doing. In fact, the word that the man used when he says, your disciples were not able is the word for weak. He's like, hey, Jesus, your, your friends are weak. Your friends over there, they're, and he's calling this out in front of the entire crowd. And the disciples are confronted with this reality 
they are unable. They are unable. This is the first reality that this text invites us to confront. The biblical truth from front to back is that human beings are weak and frail. We have limits, even for what we're called to do, even when we're doing the Lord's work, right? These are the disciples doing the very thing God had called them to do, and yet they couldn't do it. And consider all of the things you cannot do versus the list of things that you can do. Right? If you just start to think, like, sit, go home tonight and like, sit down on a piece of paper and write on one side of the list, here's everything I can do, and then begin to list the things that you can't do, and when you're done, and you'll never be done, because there's an unlimited amount of things that you and I cannot do. We're not strong, we're weak people. Right? We're not infinite, we are finite, we have limits. We're not independent creatures, we're dependent creatures. We live in a state of dependence. And as you know, tech-savvy, accomplishment-oriented, career-minded, productivity-craving, suburban, modern Americans, we hate this sentence. Your disciples were not able. You know how you feel when someone says, you are not able? What does that do to you? <laughs> we hate that sentence. Like we, we are weakness deniers is what we are, and we're really good at it. We hate, we hate this. Have you ever seen, uh, you probably haven't seen the show Lost. Who's seen Lost? Okay, so there's a character in Lost named John Locke. He's named after the philosopher John Locke. And uh, the show was like 20, or was six seasons long. And in that six seasons, this character, John Locke, had this recurring line. I think it occurred close to 30 times. And it was, don't tell me what I can't do. Every time he would come up, he was, he was lame for a while in a wheelchair, and his doctor was like, no, man, you can't go on a safari in Australia. And he like, screams at his doctor, don't tell me what I can't do. So reflecting this internal little kid that we have, is like, don't tell me I can't do something. I can do whatever I want to do. It's just like the same way if you go back to, to my kids' illustration. Like, they are fully dependent, and mostly the time they know it, but a lot of times they also don't know it. And they are living out of sync with the reality, right? Judah had a phase where he would tell us, I'm going to stay up all night. I'm staying up all night. I'm like, okay. You can try, but you are unable to do that. You can't stay up all night. You are unable. And you're like, no, I'm going to do it. I'm like, you are unable. And so that's what we do. We like ignore. We pretend. We position ourselves to receive credit for things. We have these habits of like self-aggrandizement. Like we're trying to convince ourselves that we are competent, important, capable, and worthy people. And we spend a lot of our energy and time doing that, don't we? Don't you spend a lot of time in whatever field you're in and whatever, whether it's as a parent or as a, in a specific job or as a church member or as wherever you, we spend time trying hard to convince ourselves that this sentence, this reality is not true. And for the disciples in this moment, in this story, they're being confronted with this very real thing that they are unable. They are not capable. And so we have to be able to, first of all, to be a follower of Jesus, be able to get comfortable with the sentence, I can't. I failed. <laughs> I am not enough. That's, that's reality number one. If that sounds like bad news, then you need reality number two, as you might imagine. Jesus begins to talk with the man, and eventually he gets to the place where him and the man have this uh, conversation about what they're going to do about this. And this man comes, and he is explaining how this has just been with him since childhood. It's a very big problem. The man himself obviously has said the word, I can't, 
I can't fix this. I'm bringing it to Jesus to fix. So he brings it to Jesus. And, and then he says at the end of verse 22, this is his sentence to Jesus after describing the problem in the second half of verse 22. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He's, coming, he's come to the right place, but he's riddled with doubt. He's riddled with concern. You know how you do this when, when you want something, but you're not sure if you're going to get it, so you kind of hedge your bets a little bit. That's what he's doing. He's kind of, if you can help us, just please help us if you can. He's, he doesn't want to overask because if you overask, you get over-disappointed. So he kind of like hedges his bets a little bit. And Jesus' response, if you read this in English, feels like, at least I've read it before, as kind of a sarcastic like rebuke of the man. Like, how dare you say that? You know, or like he's laughing when he's saying it. And I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think Jesus is being sarcastic or pushing back on him. I think he's shifting the focus. Because the man is saying, the, the man's question is if Jesus can do it. And Jesus is saying, that's not the question. The question is not if I can do it. The question is if you will ask me for help. That's what he means by it's possible for those who believe. What it means to believe is to come to Jesus and ask in other words, Jesus is saying, I, I always can, but are you going to ask me? Are you going to come and ask me? You see, that's the gospel. Jesus is always able. This is the second reality. As unable as we are, Jesus is able. He is capable. He is sufficient. He is powerful. And he never sleeps. Most of us sleep, I think. Jesus never sleeps. God never takes a day off. He's never unable. He has no limits on what he can see or do or think. There's no inabilities. There's no weaknesses. He is fully, completely able. And that's what when the man comes to him and he's here asking for help, but he's just not quite sure. And Jesus says, no, look, I am able. Will you ask me? Will you ask me? I said this story was about the disciples. You go down to the end the disciples, they finish up this story and they go off into the house in verse 28 and they're kind of alone. And the disciples, you can just hear Matthew's like, hey, um, Jesus, I, this is kind of awkward. <laughs> like, what, why, why couldn't we cast it out? Like, you told us to do this. Why, why couldn't we cast it out? And this is what Jesus says. He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. It's a very odd sentence. It's a very odd sentence. What, we just read the story. Jesus never prayed in the story. There's other instances where Jesus does, he prays before he does a miracle, but here he never prays. The other thing that's odd is that there's nowhere in the entire Bible where there's any indication that there's like different levels of demons. It's like this is a class A demon. You got to pray to cast that one out. <laughs> class B demons, you just do your hocus pocus and they're gone. Right? There's no like... This isn't some kind of magical formula where this particular class of demon has some special prayer words of incantation or magic that are needed to cast it out. So what is Jesus talking about? I really think what Jesus is doing here by highlighting prayer is he's, he's highlighting the difference between them and the man. The difference between the disciples and the man, there's a foil going on here. Everything that the man was willing to do, Jesus' own followers weren't able to do. What was that? Ask. They weren't able to ask. Just one commentator said this as I wrestle with this verse. He said, the disciples' problem has been a loss of the sense of dependence on Jesus' unique power. 
They lost their sense of dependence, their awareness of the existing realities that they can't, but Jesus can. They lost that sense. He says they must learn that in spiritual conflict, there is no such automatic power. It requires us to ask constantly. And I love this last sentence. This is actually his last sentence of this entire section. He says, their public humiliation has been a necessary part of their re-education to the principles of the kingdom of God. And what is that principle? It's the principle of dependence. I can't, God can. I can't, God can. I can't, God can. And the disciples are being confronted with both of these realities in real time in this story. We think that growing up to maturity means becoming more independent. That's with our kids. When you're in a job, like to be more mature means to have more authority, more ability, more independence. That's what maturity looks like in like human growth. But in Christian maturity, the more mature you are, the more dependent you realize you are. And the more you operate out of that awareness. This word that the man uses when he says, if you can help us. It's the same word he says a sentence later. I believe, help my unbelief. It's actually a rare word in Greek, and it means run to someone's aid. He's saying, Jesus, run to my aid. Run to my aid. Run to my aid. Run to my aid. Run to my son's aid. Run to my... He's asking Jesus to run to his inability with Jesus' ability. That's what's happening here. And I think Jesus is teaching his disciples... If you want to be a follower of me, this is how it works. <laughs> you can't, I can. And that, those two realities, as simple as they are, and as much as, the, as all of us already know this, <laughs> we often live out of sync with it. And we've got this, you're joking about those, I don't know, they're from the 90s, those old shirts that said, frog, fully rely on God. But besides being really corny and dumb, the, there's this, there's this underlying problem with that and that it's telling you that relying on God is something that you do, that you get to decide whether or not you rely on God. And this story is like, no, no, no. <laughs> you rely on God, period. That's a reality. And it's, we're, being, we're being invited by this story and by Jesus to be his follower by living in sync with this reality and asking, how do I orient my daily life to be in sync with the reality that God, God can, I can't? And we get out of alignment with that we get out of alignment with that. We, that's where frustration and pain and confusion and failure, failure come in because we're, we're trying to do something that we can't do. This is the disciples' problem. Their embarrassment comes from their unwillingness to admit, I can't, Jesus can. So practicing the way of Jesus for us means embracing and orienting our daily lives around this dependence about the realities that I can't, but Jesus can. I want to give you two practices that can help us do this. The answer to how do we do that, it's as big as the Bible. It's as big as our whole life, right? But two practices to pursue here. Those are the two realities. Our inability and God's ability. We have often have this, I don't know, I've had this vague sense of like, I'm gonna just try to rely on God more today. So but what does that, what does that mean? It often means nothing. <laughs> it often means nothing. It's, it's this vague, oh, I'm gonna learn how to play the piano this year. Great. 
How's that going for you? <laughs> it's like or, these vague goals of like, or statements of, I'm going to just do this thing. It just doesn't really work. We need a path. We need a way. We need to structure and orient our lives around moving towards this. And so these two practices, as I'm saying every week, are not for their own sake, but they are a pathway towards living within earshot of God, living within eyeshot of God's reality and his power and his ability. So here's the two things, the two practices I want to highlight for us. The first one um, comes right from the text. It's not hard to see Jesus at the end. This kind, meaning the, what kind? Like life, doing anything that requires spiritual power cannot be happening by prayer. Must need prayer. Prayer is, is the first practice. I want to specifically advocate for and invite you to consider the practice of daily prayer daily prayer. If you're not familiar with that phrase, it also goes by the name praying the hours. That's a long ancient word for it or the daily office. It's, it's kind of taken, it's been taken throughout church history from Jewish practice of praying at specific set times throughout the day. Um, it's this rhythm of structuring your days, not just around our activities, but around prayer. That if, if we really truly are fully dependent upon God in everything, that we can't but God can, we need, and we're being aware of that is the, one of the main things it means to follow Jesus, then we ought to be spending our time orienting ourselves around the one thing that connects us with that power, and that's prayer. Oftentimes in the ancient church, these set times would be like 7, 8, 9, 12 times a day, where you just literally pray at every hour. They did it in the monasteries, but they also did it in everyday life, and it's come down to us in morning and evening prayer primarily, prayer in the morning, prayer in the evening, and then there's two smaller versions with like a noontime prayer and a bedtime prayer called Compline. It comes, a lot of it comes from the, the common book of prayer, but there are millions of Christians all over the globe that pray on this sort of set rhythm. We're constantly going back at a set time, not haphazardly, right? This isn't, I just hope that I depend on God, hope that I am aware of my dependence on God. I'm going to set this into my calendar to remind myself and draw my attention back to God. And it reframes what we're doing, reframes our morning, reframes our noontime, reframes our evening time, reframes our bedtime around dependence upon God. This is important because we or humans, we have limits. We, are, we struggle to learn to do, to perform anything without structure and rhythm and intentionality. I think a lot of my past struggle with prayer has been, again, sort of this same just desire to just pray more. And I've heard lots of people say, I'm just going to pray more this year. <laughs> How are you going to do that? This is a way to actually structure prayer into the regular hours of your day, to orient your time and your body we have to stop doing something to pray during the day. That's, that reorients you. <laughs> to not say, I'll pray when I get around to it, but no, I'm going to stop at 6 p.m. every day and pray um, to set these times into our, into our life, to structure our time around prayer. It becomes like a trellis. If, if your spiritual life is like the, the plant, a prayer schedule, daily prayer, sets this time during your day where the fruit of your awareness and dependence on God can actually grow. Um, I was... I think Lem actually introduced me to, well, Justin Taylor, many of you know Justin from Carmel, he introduced this to me years ago and handed me the common book of prayer, which I could not figure out how to use, so I just gave up right away. <laughs> and then uh, a few year, a year later, probably Lem and I were talking about this, and I began to practice this practice for the first time in my life. I'd always had different various practices of prayer and reading scripture, but I began to practice, this was probably four or five years ago, 
um, of praying in the morning and using the, the structure of, of daily prayer, the daily office. And I began doing that again at night. I didn't do it ever as much as night as I did in the morning. But over the, at first it was very unfamiliar. <laughs> it was very confusing. To me, it's not just a, a simple one-line prayer. It, it walks through a set of things, almost like our liturgy here. It walks through a confession time. It walks through the creed. It walks through an intercessory prayer time. It walks through a scripture reading time. And it reframes all of those things inside of prayer. And I didn't understand that at first, but then as I began to do it, I began to realize how it was shaping my day, where I would remember the scripture that I read in the morning, and I would remember my, every morning, it gives me a chance to confess. Many of us have practices of reading scripture, but do you have a personal practice of confession outside of the church? This is a way to bring that practice into your prayer time. Um, is your prayer a haphazard or crisis-oriented prayer? A lot of us do that. A lot of us, that's how we respond to God. And it demonstrates that we tend to think of God as like a, a coach or a safety net <laughs> rather than this full-out, all-the-time dependence. Um, so I want to invite you. We have some of these, not a ton, but we can get more. Um, this is a very simple version of this. I want to commend it to you. It's called the Field Guide for Daily Prayer. And it takes both the morning office and the evening office where it walks through the different sections. It's just like two little pages here. And it, it would help... Um, it would help you understand a lot better than I did when I first started how, what it looks like and what it means to practice prayer in a rhythmic or you know, consistent uh, way that actually orders my day around prayer rather than fitting prayer in to the margins. Um, I'll encourage you, even if you don't want to use daily office format, to think about and consider setting a specific time, there multiple times during the day where you stop to pray. Even if that's just a simple breath prayer that you say, I'm going to stop at 9 a.m. and I'm going to say the same prayer every day. Right? We learn by repetition. Pick some times throughout your day. How are you ordering your day around your dependence with God? So I'm telling you, if you don't do that on purpose, you're not doing it. Right? That's something we've learned. We've seen that over the last two weeks. These are things, if we don't do it, the, the, the pull of our own hearts and the pull of our culture will move us out of that space and out of that willingness. Um, this is something you can practice in groups, in your community groups. You could talk to your community group leaders. Our group occasionally does the bedtime. We meet at night, so we'll do the bedtime format. We did it this week called Compline. It's just a great time of actually feeding our souls and with the remembrance that we are dependent upon God tonight as a group, as a community. So that's the first thing. There's lots more to say about that. There's lots more we could talk about. But I want to encourage you to think about Time-oriented prayer, structuring your time, structuring your day around specific prayer. Jesus says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And what he means is, you can't live a life of spiritual power without prayer. So that's the first practice for today, daily prayer. The second one is the practice of Sabbath. Maybe this doesn't jump off the page at you as you think about this. I'm not sure what your past experiences of Sabbath and Sabbath practices um, and I got to be honest, I have like 74 hours of notes on Sabbath. The stuff I read was so good this week on Sabbath that I just have notes and notes and notes. So I'm just going to give you a, a handful of things. But the best definition that I came across this week um, is by a pastor. And he says that Sabbath is a period of time with no have-tos or ought-tos, resulting in deep rest and renewal. I want you to think about the last time that you had a period of time with no have-tos and no ought-tos. 
probably not very often that we experience no have-tos and no off-tos. We live in a performance-oriented world where your success depends on you and your work and your performance and your output. And we're tired because we're striving to be meaningful. And followers of Jesus are invited into this space where it's okay and it's important and necessary to remind ourselves that the world does not revolve or depend upon us. It depends upon God. Sabbath is setting aside specific time for your body and your soul to learn that tomorrow the sun will rise no matter what you do. It's really important that you know that and that you hear that. It's part of what the disciples needed. They needed to know the world does not depend on me. It depends on Jesus. Sabbath is one of the ways that we train ourselves. It's rooted in the the Jewish practice, again, the 10th commandment is to keep the Sabbath day holy. That's a whole set of things on its own. This isn't just a day off from work. This is a day where we protect time and we have things that we pursue and things that we don't do. And that's not legalistic. That's a way of creating a space for us to actually have this refreshing and renewing of souls where we don't have ought tos and have tos. It's a great uh, connection with sleep. I've always loved the idea of sleep, but... Um, James Bryan Smith is a writer. He says, sleep is a declaration of trust. It is admitting that we are not God who never sleeps and that it is good news. Like Every time you go to sleep, you have the opportunity before you go to sleep to realize this is a moment where I'm able to admit that I'm not God, <laughs> that God is making the world go round even if I never wake up. Sabbath is the same thing, but it's for awake time. <laughs> it's a way of spending time Knowing, reorienting our bodies, our minds, our souls to, to rejoice in our creatureliness, that you have limits, that you need to sleep and stop, that you are not dependent upon what you put out to come in. This is part of the invitation of this kind of passage is to, as we recognize our dependence and as we recognize our need to be aligned with that, we need to practice that. And Sabbath is a way of practicing being a child of God, not a productivity machine. And the joy of being able to do that is immense. From people who have a regular practice of Sabbath, the joy that comes from that space and that time of rest and renewal and delight in God and in his world is immense. So the way to do this, simple. My family has been wrestling through this. It's hard to stop and rest when you have four children. So, you know, rest and renewal rhythms look different for everyone. But the point is, again, if you need to do this intentionally. If we're going to practice, if we're going to follow Jesus and teach our bodies that the world does not depend upon us, we have to carve out time to stop and to rest and to be renewed by Jesus. So pick a time during the week, same time every week. Rhythm, structure is important for these kind of practices. Pick a list of things to pursue. These are things that are life-giving to me, things about God's world and about who I am and who God has made me and my family that I enjoy and do those things, here are things that suck the life out of me. <laughs> and I'm not going to do those things. Not because I can't, but because I don't have to. Don't do things that you don't have to do. It takes preparation. And if there's some of these things that you do have to do every day, right? With my kids, there's things I have to do every day or else they will die, right? So in Sabbath time, I have to do them ahead of time. This is the Israelite preparation on a Friday for Saturday to do them ahead of time so that I can fully engage and rest and be renewed during that time of, of Sabbath, right? Again, must have structure because the, the pull of productivity, I don't know if you've ever felt that, is too strong, and it will draw you right back into both body, mind, and soul into I am what I produce. The practice of Sabbath, a little warning, actually requires lifestyle changes. 
This isn't something that you can just kind of do haphazardly or do occasionally or do carefree. It actually requires like trying and doing it on purpose. So those are just two very brief high-level flyovers of the two practices of daily prayer and Sabbath. I want to just kind of put them in your mind, plant some seeds today for those practices. If you already practice those, I'd love to hear about that and hear how you do that um, so that we can share that with our church. I want to see both of these practices become normal in our church over time, in our lives. Um, I think these are things that orient us around one of the fundamental realities of following Jesus is that you can't, but Jesus can. Again, these are not magic. They don't make you holy. Doing them is not going to gain you favor with God. Okay? Prayer doesn't change God. It changes us. Sabbath doesn't change God. It doesn't pay off God. It's just, God gets nothing out of your Sabbath. You get the rest and renewal and joy of being a child without producing. And the Christian vision of the world is this renewed world where everything is made right, right? where there's no more tears, there's no more pain, there's no more death. The wine never runs out. This is the vision of perfection, of renewal. And yet, in that vision, you are still dependent upon God because you're still a creature. We don't get beyond our creatureliness. These practices, in a lot of ways, are practicing for eternity, practicing for what it means when we will be in the presence of God, still dependent upon his perfect love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would teach us about our dependence on you, our dependence as creatures, that our um, life from rising to setting would be a life of um, cultivating our awareness of our dependence upon you, of rejoicing in it, that the world does not depend upon us, that you have done what is necessary both for our salvation but also for the world to exist. Give us joy in it. Let us, um, let us feel and sense and know, coming to you in, in prayer, resting before you and enjoying what you have made. God, give us joy um, to know that we can't but you can. We pray this in your name.